0: couple months ago, it was Christmas time. My uh, wife and my kids and I, we jumped in the van and we went and drove around to look at Christmas lights like you do, you know, it's Christmas time. And uh, so we're driving around and, you know, we're kind of new to Grant's Pass. We don't really know where all the lights are, but We found one pretty good neighborhood, and uh, I realized, you know, this could be kind of funny because my my oldest is only six, you know, and she's sort of directionally challenged. Um, She doesn't always know where things are, and and, and my other kids are just pretty little, so I thought, you know, this would be kind of funny. I wonder how many times I could drive by the same house and just get really excited every time, and I wonder how many times my kids would... (laughs) just think it was a brand new house. So I did, yeah, two, three times. Guys, look at this one. Wow, that's the best one ever. Wow, look at this house. And then we drive around and come back and go best. Look at this one, it's even better. You know, I did the same thing to my daughter. Months back, you're thinking you're a cruel father. Um, We we went to the park and then we went for a walk and what do you know, we found another park. And it was just like, wow, we found two parks. It was actually the same park. I just told her we'd found another one. (laughs) This is how we build character in our children, right? You've heard the expression, it's the oldest trick in the book. It's funny, the enemy uh, the enemy of the church, the enemy of the Lord, uh, he really doesn't have to get very creative. <laughs> he, really, he can really just use the same tricks over and over and over again. And we just fall for him. You know, we just do. If the enemy's playbook were to fall on the ground, you were to go pick it up and open it, you would see a page that was really worn. Uh, A page that was dog-eared and and flipped to more than any other page in his playbook. And if you were to open that that page up and look on it, there would be two plays on there. Two plays. Uh, And we're going to call them Assault and Accolades. Assault and Accolades. And the enemy doesn't have to get very creative to attack the church. He just can do the same things over and over. And we are so gullible, we just fall for him over and over and over again. The two ways that he primarily attacks the movement of the gospel, the work of the church, is first, Assault assault is basically to beat the snot out of you it's nothing new he did it to the church he did it to the apostles he's doing it to christians all over the world he just full frontal assault just attack the church now uh, he does that sometimes maybe not so much in physical ways here in the u.s but 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 through discouragement through persecution maybe verbally he just attacks the church, just full on. And as we see this, as, the book, as we go travel through the book of Acts, we just see the enemy literally full on assaulting the work of the gospel. Every time the gospel takes root somewhere, there's an instant um, uh, battleground right there. Okay, so this, this is the first one. Uh, how does he do, do this? He does it by any means necessary. He does it by discouraging um, the efforts through physical attacks, psychological discouragement, verbal assault. I've already talked to three people this morning that feel discouraged. Three people this morning that feel discouraged, frustrated, down. Now we come to church and we smile and we pretend to be happy, but, but I know if I really were to sit with you and ask you, how are you really doing, a lot of you would say, I feel discouraged. I feel attacked. So this is, this is the way the enemy attacks. The second way is through accolades. And this is a little bit of a different approach. This is a little bit more like sabotage through espionage. And what the enemy does, sometimes rather than just full-on attack what you're doing for the Lord, he actually helps you do it better. He gives you the success that you were looking for, but then he comes in from the side and he actually starts to convince you that maybe you really are something. <laughs> maybe you really got something going here. Maybe you're really special. I mean, maybe, maybe you're just really gifted. The way that this works is he lets the kingdom expand in a way that people begin to worship and look to the people and the methods rather than the gospel itself, right? To convince the leaders that they're really something special to get them to write a book about how they did it so everyone else can do it the way they did it, right? To inflate their estimation of their own self-importance. Now, I'm not speaking from experience or anything, um, but being a pastor, I am constantly being attacked by one of these two things. Now, you don't know this. You know, we, we come, we do church, and I preach, and uh, it's the culmination of many hours of study and things like this, and, um, and then, you know, we all go home. And Sunday afternoon is a particularly interesting time in my week, because one of these two things is always happening for me. Either one, I'm just feeling incredibly discouraged. <laughs> Either one, I'm just feeling like, man, that was just whatever. Nobody, got, nobody knew what I was saying, and that was just, you know, there was just, just too many distractions going on, and, and what, a, what a waste of my time, and, you know, what, what, what was I doing? I just totally screwed up. And then I'm just really down on myself for a whole day, and I have to preach the gospel to myself until Monday morning I start feeling like a normal human being again. Okay. The other option is, is what happens a lot of times. Is if my sermon goes okay or things go well on Sunday, then I go home feeling pretty good about myself. And I wake up on Monday morning and I think, oh, I don't really need to read my Bible this morning. You know, I, I start thinking about the next week's sermon. And I don't, I don't really need to invite the Lord. I don't really need to really pursue him, dependently come to him. I think, you know, I think I got this. I can prep a sermon. I think I can do this pastor thing. Uh, I'm okay at this. I mean, it's just this constant. Any of you that have done any amount of ministry in your life, um, this is not limited to pastors. This is any kind of ministry in your life. You know this pendulum that constantly comes. I'm terrible, I'm awesome. I'm terrible, I'm awesome. When things go good, you feel really good about yourself. When things go bad, you feel really terrible about yourself. And the enemy is just there to push you into either one. Because both of them ultimately lead to a place of self-dependency. One leads to despair. The other one leads to self-dependency. And neither of them actually continue the movement of the gospel. This is how the enemy attacked Jesus Christ. Think about it, okay? Uh, The enemy in the wilderness, the Spirit of God led Jesus after his baptism into ministry into the wilderness to fast, okay, for a certain amount of time. And what does the enemy do? He tempts him with worldly accolades. He says, I'll give you the kingdom without the cross. You can have the crown without the cross. You can skip all that suffering stuff. You can skip all that hardship stuff. Just go right to rule in the world. I'll give it to you, Satan says. See the temptation there? And, of course, Jesus doesn't fall for it. He lives the perfect life, the life you and I should have lived. And so what does Jesus do? Or what does the enemy do? He kills him. He goes to the other tactic. He sends him to the cross. Okay? So you see that the, 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 the accolades and the assault both are in play there against the enemy. Now, how is this relevant to our text today? In Acts chapter 14, we really see both of these plays of the enemy come in uh, into our text. We really see him. He does both in the church. Uh, and so what we're going to do is kind of step back and ask the question, how do we combat these kinds of things? How do we combat these two attacks of the enemy, um, both to be discouraged because of, of, of assault or, or to be prideful because of accolades? How do we combat those? How did they combat them in our text? And there's, some, I think, some pretty good practical answers there. Now, let me just say, by the way, that if you are experiencing either of those two things, it means that God is using you in your life. If you're feeling like the enemy is discouraging you, it's because the kingdom is advancing. If you're experiencing spiritual pride and having to wrestle with that, it means because the kingdom's advancing. So that's good news, right? Because the kingdom is advancing in the book of Acts and the gospel is powerful and people are getting saved, the enemy is on full watch. a youth pastor that used to say, you know, if there was a sniper up on a hill and you had two people running away from him and one's 100 yards and one's a mile away, One's only 100 yards away and one's a mile away. Which one's he going to shoot first? Well, the one that's a mile away. He can get the guy who's 100 yards away at any point, right? The one that is a mile away, he's got to get him because he's almost out of his sights. You start serving Jesus, you start doing gospel work, kingdom work, you are inviting the fire of the enemy. That's just the reality of it. So you want to be used by God? You better start learning how to put your armor on. And the Apostle Paul was very, very keen on that. He spoke a lot about it. So let's dive into our text. So let's start with the first assault, which is the assault of the the gospel here in chapter 14, verse 1. Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So again, we see the gospel um, doing its work. People are getting saved, and it's powerful. Verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Now, who are the brothers? The brothers are the brand new baby converts that just got saved. I mean, you remember there's, there is no Christians in these towns. Paul and Barnabas they're coming into these, these these completely untilled soil and they're bringing the gospel and people are getting saved. These guys are like two days old in the Lord. Brand new Christians. And as this is happening, the enemy is stirring up um, these Judaizers and stirring up these Jewish people to come in and literally attack these brand new Christians. Now, you can imagine, as a brand new Christian, people start wanting to kill you because of the declaration of faith that you just made. Okay? Your faith is fragile at that point. You know that's like taking a tiny little shoot and throwing it in a trash compactor. You know, I mean, it's just like your faith is fragile. That's why when Jesus talked about the gospel, he says there's many times where the seed goes down and 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 it starts to take root, but the 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 soil's too shallow, or a bird of the air comes and snatches it away. So these are brand new baby Christians, and the enemy is doing his best to try to remove that powerful work of the gospel from their heart. Verse three. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. Who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. I don't want you to miss something here. I circled the word so right at the beginning of verse 3. Because you would expect it to say, they poisoned the minds of the brothers, but they remained a long time to strengthen them. But that's not what it says. They poisoned the minds of the brothers, so they remained. They remained because there was this attack. Okay, They remained because there was work to be done. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made both by Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them, to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Whenever attack comes, what happens? The gospel goes out. Remember, they were in Jerusalem, and there was this mega church happening in Jerusalem. It was really exciting. And then all of a sudden, persecution happens. What happens? It scatters the gospel all over the place. So the enemy thinks he's winning by kicking them out of Iconium, but rather the gospel is just spreading like wildfire to the surrounding cities. So they go out to the surrounding cities. Now skip over to verse 19. Skip over to verse 19. Let's continue this story here. The Jews follow them to Lystra. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Now imagine how these guys are feeling. I know we think, oh, they're apostles, they're superhuman, they didn't have feelings, they didn't struggle, they didn't get discouraged. These guys got discouraged. I guarantee it. Okay, now wherever they go, these guys from, from, uh, from Pisidian, uh, Antioch, um, in, in, in these other cities are, are literally following them around, stirring up crowds wherever they go. So now whenever they try to preach the gospel, there's somebody there trying to start a fight, trying to pick a fight. I had a kid like that in eighth grade. You know, he just liked watching fights. So he'd spread rumors to start fights, and then he could watch them. Like he thought that was the best thing in the world. He did it with me one time. He, he spread this rumor, and it was this big thing, and this kid tried to fight me. It was like wherever I went, this guy was there trying to start fights this is exactly what these guys are trying to do. Wherever they go spread the gospel, there's there's these guys trying to stir up problems, stir up commotion. How discouraging would that be? How frustrating would that be? Just constant oppression from the enemy. I remember when we were planting, uh, and we we know nothing to this degree in our country, praise the Lord, right, in terms of persecution. But I remember when we were getting ready to plant this and we were putting out some Facebook stuff just trying to let people know that we were kind of planting a new church here. And I went and made the mistake of reading the comments. (laughs) on the post, I'll never do that again, you know, I mean, just like, we don't want you here, we don't need more churches here, hail Satan, whatever, you know, like, I mean, just crazy stuff, like, just the enemy, like, we don't want this church in Grants Pass, and I thought, wow, we got to get there, after I was discouraged for a few days, you know, we got enough churches in Grants Pass, we don't need another church, what, what, what makes you different, what makes you blah, 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 and I'm like, man, the enemy does not want Philippi in Grants Pass, that's the reality, now imagine that times 100, what happens to Paul? They stone him and think he's dead. <laughs> you want to talk about persecution, when was the last time you got, no, not t- last time you got stoned, I know that was in high school and a VW bus, but when's the last time you got physically stoned, okay? I mean, literally, like, it's unreal. I can't imagine the discouragement that would come. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians eleven, twenty-four. 24. He, he talks about, he kind of gives a, a repertoire of all of his suffering. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times that's right there, that's what he was talking about. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was drift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger, thirst, often without food, and cold, exposure, apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all. All the churches. You think Paul had a nice, easy missionary life? Like, where the heck do we get this idea that Christianity is easy? Where do we get this idea that that when we get saved, all of a sudden everything in life should just be really nice and easy, and our kids are gonna just grow up the way we want, and that we're never gonna have anything hard, and we're not gonna get cancer, and everything's gonna be fine, and our bodies will continue to work. And where does that come from? That's a false gospel. That's a false gospel. Paul had probably one of the hardest lives you could possibly imagine. And he had it pretty good before that in Judaism. He was the man. He had the equivalent of three doctorates in Judaism. He was the the up-and-coming star in his his religion. And he leaves it all to go get beat up, stoned, uh, thrown in prison, shipwrecked, mocked, all of these things. That's what he gave up for that. I mean, why, why would he do that? I think the message that he bore was such that he couldn't ignore it, right? So here's our question. How do these guys respond to this? How are we to respond to the assault of the enemy? We'll get to the accolades in a little bit. But how do we respond to the assault of the enemy? And there's a really clear answer here um, in verse 21. Look at how they respond. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they, what, returned to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch, strengthening the soul's of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. What do they do in response to the enemy's attack? They go back to the cities that they had already um, planted churches at, and they encouraged, note that word, encouraged the believers. You know what the opposite of discouragement is? Encouragement. These guys are discouraged. Their courage has been taken away. Now they are being encouraged. They're being encouraged by the apostles. They could have gone straight home, back to Syria, and there would have been a much more direct route, but rather they went and retraced their steps, went back into the cities, risking being stoned again, risking being beaten again to encourage the saints. Now, this word encouragement or encourage, uh, we've spoke about it before, but I want to remind you. It's the Greek word parakaleo. Parakaleo, and that's a... a, um, Two words, two Greek words, pushed together. Para means alongside. To come alongside. Think of parallel, okay? Uh, kaleo is call. So it's it's to come alongside and to call. If you remember Barnabas, who's on this trip, he was the son of encouragement. He's an encouraging guy. They're coming in to come alongside and to call the saints up. To, to remind them of this high calling that they've been given. To remind them of the implications of the gospel that has been planted in their heart. This is their goal. This is their, uh, what they set out to do. Now, Paul was so focused on encouraging. He was such an encourager in his letters. He says, I just wish I could come to you so that I could encourage you. This is the job of the church. This is the job of the church. There's this, there's this idea going around. Right? I think it's in our subconscious. That, that The reason we come to church is so that we could come be encouraged. Is that true? Yeah. But who's supposed to do it? Is, it? is that my job? Am I supposed to encourage everybody? Or is that your job? Your, your, you should come to church with two things in mind. One, I need to be encouraged. And two, I need to encourage. This is your job. This is our job as the body of Christ. We come together for the purpose of edifying, encouraging the saints, building up the body. This was the purpose of the church. The church was designed for this this thing. So, So when people come in, and we do, we come in struggling, we come in frustrated, we come in under attack, under assault, the idea, the goal, the vision, the dream for this church is that this is a place where you can actually bring that stuff up. I'll never forget church I worked at for many years, I was the worship guy. And it was a large church, so there's a green room and a back door. And after worship, I would always let myself out the back door and I'd take a breath and look at the sunshine and I'd come back in and listen to the sermon. And in the back of the church, multiple times, I would find people back there weeping. Weeping. Sometimes smoking cigarettes, but more often than not, weeping. One guy, because his wife just served him his divorce papers the day before. Another guy, I uh, just found out his wife had, just kind of the theme there, but his wife had, had had an affair on him. And the only place he could think to go at church was behind the building by himself. And I just thought to myself, why? Why is this so backwards? Like, you should be in the church. The body should be around you. The body should be praying for you, encouraging you, ministering to you. And instead, you feel like you have to come out and be behind the church because you can't bring up your stuff. to The body, I think that was one of those clicking points for me where I thought, you know, Sunday's gotta be different. Sunday has to have space for that. Sunday has to be a place where people can actually, if they're hurting, if they're suffering, there's space for that. So, so in a few minutes, we're gonna break into circles, right? And, and in those circles, um, you, you know, if, if there's something I'm asking you to talk about and there's something more pressing that needs to be brought up, do it. If you're struggling this morning, you're in a circle, I want you to say, I need you guys to pray for me, and I want you to talk to them. I want you to pray for them. I want you to get it out, okay? Um, but th- this is the point of the way we're doing this here, is that we want to create space for us to be the church, to encourage each other, to parakaleo, to come alongside, to call up. This is the purpose of the church. Now, the question becomes, what was the encouragement that they brought? Is this one thing to just say, I just want to be an encouraging person? What does that mean? Does that just mean you just say positive things all the time? Well, those people drive me crazy. You know those people? You know, it's like, you're like, how you doing, I'm having a hard day. Well, Jesus is on the throne! You're like, okay, thank you, you know. You put that on a fridge magnet and put it on my fridge. Like, you know, it's like, what what does it mean to encourage? Does encourage just mean that you're just positive, you never say anything negative, that you're just upbeat all the time? Well, some people just have that personality and some people are Eeyores and, you know, and and, and so what does it really mean to encourage? How do we really encourage people? And, And the answer is really here in the text. The answer is instead of removing tribulation or promising a removal of the tribulation, you give purpose and meaning to the tribulation. Do you understand what I mean? Rather than doing what I feel is natural to do, which is come in and say, hey, it's really not that bad, and it'll get better, and don't worry, things will be okay, and and firing out empty promises like we all like to do when someone's hurting. Rather than doing that, the, the apostles actually come in and they say, hey, it might get worse. In fact, it has to get worse. But let me tell you why worse is so important. And so valuable, so that your struggle is not pointless, meaningless. So that no tear is wasted. So that no wrinkle on your face from stress is ever gone without having a purpose attached to it. When I uh, was trying to, uh, sloppily, trying to coach my wife through labor three times, I, I realized that there was one thing that was not helpful. And that was, it's probably not that bad. You can get through it. Don't worry, the epidural's coming. not helpful. What's helpful? What was helpful? You're making ground. You're doing good. This is good work. You're putting in good work. You're getting closer. Every contraction, you're a little bit closer. You're a little closer to what? You're a little closer to something. A human life is coming, and you're working for that. You're working towards that. You're not just suffering for no reason. Why? Cancer is so terrible, and sickness is so terrible, because you're not working for anything. It's just killing you. Labor is probably one of the most painful things you ever do in your life, but it's for something. There's a payoff. You see the difference? What what these guys do is they give a worldview, a theological framework for the suffering that these guys are going through. John Piper says, wimpy worldviews make wimpy Christians. (laughs) Every time I'm like, man, I am such a wimp, I realize, man, I am a product of wimpy Western culture. (laughs) I don't know how to suffer. I don't know how to struggle soon as things are hard, I'm thinking, is there a product that could make this easier? <laughs> we need a robust theology for suffering. And, then that, thought, and that theology, and I'm, I'm, sorry if, I'm not sorry if I offend anyone with this, um, that theology is not, hey, if you just have enough faith, your life wouldn't be so hard. That is satanic. Because what that does is it says, hey, the only reason you're struggling is because you have not named and claimed God's healing over that. What does that mean? What is that telling you? It's telling you that you're choosing to suffer. Therefore, your suffering is meaningless. Usually said by someone on a stage that's wearing glasses and, um, you know, and can't seem to heal themselves. Now there's certainly a place to ask God for healing. But this idea that healing comes always if there's enough faith is just so troubling. Because it puts all of the the impetus, all of the 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 strength on the person to have enough faith to heal themselves. And sometimes, and tell that to James, the brother of Christ, when he was getting you know getting murdered. Tell that to Stephen, as he was being stoned. I mean, tell tell you just if you had had more faith, God would have saved you. Not necessarily. What we need is we need the faith to trust God that he can save us, the faith to trust God that he can heal us, but the theological framework to understand why he doesn't sometimes and what his purposes might be in that. It's our pleasure to ask God for healing it, and it's also our job to, to, to trust him when he doesn't. And we need to understand why. So look at what the encouragement is. This is kind of an interesting phrase. He says, strengthens the souls verse 22 strengthening strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's an interesting phrase. I'm going to say it again. He says through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. You could say it another way. You could say the only way you can enter the kingdom of God is with many tribulations. What do we do with that? What does that mean? And what an interesting thing to say in terms of encouragement. was <laughs> not what I would think to say. I would think to say, hey, you know, maybe it'll go away. Maybe it'll get better. He says, no, 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 no. The only way into the kingdom is through tribulation. Now, let me tell you what that doesn't say. It's not saying that the only way you can get saved is if you, you know, are persecuted for Jesus. This isn't some kind of Islamic theology where if you blow yourself up, you know, you get to go be in heaven. Certainly not what he's saying. We know that. The gospel is grace alone by faith alone. You know, we don't, we don't earn merit or favor with God by persecution. It's certainly not what he's saying. We know that. Here's what it means. And I'll say it in a sentence and then I'll unpack it. It means that tribulation, listen, tribulation is the metamorphic, you know what metamorphosis is? It's a transformation. Tribulation is the metamorphic process of Christian growth in which we grow out of this present kingdom and into the next kingdom. Tribulation is the metamorphic process of Christian growth in which we grow out of the present kingdom and into the next. Let me give you three reasons why tribulation is the metamorphic process of Christian growth. Three reasons. Number one, tribulation reveals who is in us. Tribulation reveals who is in us. Flip on your Bibles over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul, the man who suffered much for the gospel, if anyone would have had faith to heal himself of these things, it would have been Paul. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse seven through fifteen. Listen to what Paul says about tribulation. Chapter four, verse seven. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why, Paul, why do we have these treasures in jars of clay? He says to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And before we move on now, let, let me explain what he means by that. He's saying that this eternally valuable treasure, the most valuable thing that you will ever have or could ever have in the universe, which is Christ himself. This treasure has been placed in the least valuable, the least enduring, the least powerful, the least beautiful vessel possible, which is a jar of clay. It's basically mud with water. It's fragile. If you, know, if you go to Israel, you know what you see all over the ground? No matter how many, I don't know how it works, but no matter how many people pick them up, they're still all over the ground in Israel. There is just clay shards, just pieces of pottery. Because it's so fragile. It just bursts easy. It's just it's like the most fragile thing ever. So you just reach down, you pick them up, put them in your pocket. The reality he's getting at here is that the most strong and beautiful and powerful and glorious thing in the world, which is Jesus Christ himself, has chosen to inhabit the least powerful, least beautiful, le- most fragile thing in the world, which is a clay pot. For why? For the purpose of showing off not the clay pot, but the value that's inside of it. The idea is if, if, if clay pot begins to break, what happens? You start to see through. And when you see through, you see what's on the inside. This is what happens. Tribulation comes, and we begin to break. Our physicality begins to break, our emotional, um, you know, our emotional stability starts to break. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, then you just haven't been alive very long. You just come up, you just come up against the reality of your, your weakness, uh, of, of your brokenness, of the fact that, you, you know, sometimes you just don't have the answer. And sometimes you don't even know what to do or what to say. And sometimes you're just just physically limited. And you just can't do anything but just call your boss and say, I can't come in today. Or whatever it is. Every time that happens, there is an opportunity for the, the true strength that is inside you. And it's not your strength. It's a strength that's been imported into you. It's God's strength. It's God's beauty. It's God's spirit to pop out like light out of cracks in a pot. That happens through tribulation. As our bodies are breaking down, does anyone in here feel like your body is breaking down? I know I'm only 30, but I'm already feeling it, okay? As your body, this clay vessel, is breaking down, the light and the glory and the splendor of Christ begins to shine through. I, as a pastor, I've had the privilege of getting to go visit people on their deathbeds in their older years, um, Christians, godly saints, and I'll never forget this one gal that I went to see. I went to her house. She was literally minutes away from taking her last breath, and her sister and her husband and all of her family are gathered around. And she was a godly woman who went to our church. Um, no one, if she wasn't, she wasn't, she didn't draw attention to herself. She wasn't outspoken. She was just quiet. Godly saint, and I got to go in and meet her for the first time on her deathbed. And she couldn't talk. And I, and I, and I just went. Like, what am I going to say to this gal? And I just began to read 1 Corinthians fifteen, which talks about the resurrection life that Christ has purchased and put within us. And as I'm beginning to speak and say these words, I can just see her eyes just fill with tears. And they weren't tears of tears of sorrow; they were tears of joy. And she was even able to crack a smile. I could tell this was this woman had no regrets because she was filled with Christ. And she had grown into her new life and grown out of her earlier life. She outgrew her body. Her body was too small for her. Her kingdomness was just bursting out of her. And like the glory of God just popping out of a broken vessel, there she was. It's just beautiful, astounding. And I just remember driving home just thinking, wow, that's my goal. That's what it means, that's what Paul's saying. He says in verse 8, we are afflicted, and I'm still in 2 Corinthians 4, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, perplexed, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of death, or carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. That is a robust theology of suffering. How does Paul get dragged out of the city, stoned and left for dead, and get up and go preach the gospel the next day? That's the answer. In my weakness, his strength is made full. If you were to take a piece of titanium and put it into an aluminum can, and then you were just to obliterate that aluminum can, just throw it on the ground, throw it against a wall, you know what would start to happen? The can would start to take on the shape of the titanium inside. The can is not the point. The real value is on the inside, and this is what happens. You know why they put, gold, you know why they put diamond rings in black boxes? It's not for the box. I mean, what would you do if you proposed to your wife? She said, wow, thanks, grabbed the box and threw the ring in the garbage. <laughs> That's not the point. The point is the value inside the box. And the box is black boxes to show off the beauty and the glory of the diamond. My wife wears the ring, the box, I don't even know what happened to it. The point is what's inside. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about our bodies. But they're tense. They're tense. They're just tense. So tribulation reveals who is in us. The second thing is tribulation reveals the work that has been done in us tribulation reveals the work that has been done in us. Now flip over to 1 Peter, turn to the right, a few books. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6 and 7. Listen to what Peter the apostle says, again writing to a group of people that were being persecuted, the persecuted church. Chapter 1 verse 6. It says in this you rejoice. In what? What do we rejoice in, Peter? Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, now he's going to give the reason for the trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, not the, not the, not the test, but the faith is more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter is pulling on another image. Just like Paul picked up the the image of the pot, he picks up an image of gold. Now gold is an amazing thing. Usually when you dig it up, it's kind of amalgamated with a bunch of other materials that you don't want, that aren't valuable. So the way that you, you purify gold is you throw it in a pan, you heat it up, you superheat it, and as you superheat it, all of the things that you don't want in there, they begin to rise to the surface because the gold is the heaviest thing, begin to rise to the surface and it creates sort of a film on top and you literally just come out and you scrape all of the garbage off the top and what's left is the most pure gold possible. Now what's beauty about that, what's beautiful about that is that the heat is the process. You notice that? The heat is the process, but the heat, is the heat creating the gold or is the heat purifying the gold? Is the heat creating the gold, or is the heat literally just exposing the purity that was already there? Just removing the things that, that weren't supposed to be there. Now, when it says that, that, that your faith, the genuineness of your faith is tested in verse 7, there's two different kinds of testing. And let me give you an example. The first kind of testing is when I buy something on Amazon Prime, and it's really cheap, and I'm like, I don't know, this is like five bucks. Is this thing gonna last? I don't know, but it's five bucks, so you just buy it anyways and it's there in two days, it's great. You buy something on Amazon Prime and then, and then you go test it. And what test it means is like, I don't know if this thing's gonna work. It might last me one time, it might last me a couple times, I don't know, that's one kind of testing. Then there's a different kind of testing. This is where you go to REI, where you go to, you know, you go to some custom place and you buy a really good piece of machinery or a really good you know, item and you know this thing's gonna last you your entire life. And you're going to test it, not to see if it's going to break, but to see how long it'll work, to see the craftsmanship come through. This is how we are tested by the Lord. See, when God tests you, he's not like, well, I wonder if Sam's going to hold up. You know, I wonder if Sam's going to, he already knows. He knows that what he has put in me is gold. What he has put in me is so powerful and so strong because it's his spirit that he can test it just simply to reveal what's already there. Are you with me? It's not that he's creating something through this test. It's not that he's seeing if I'm really genuine. He's showing off what he's already made. Like a master craftsman taking what he's made that he knows will work, and he knows will do what it's supposed to do, and showing off how well it works because he made it. We don't make ourselves; He makes us. And God shows off through tribulations what he has actually done in us. Tribulation has a way of revealing that. has a way of revealing that God actually lives inside of us and that he's done incredible work. Number 3 tribulation is the realization of regeneration. It's the realize if you're writing these down it was tribulation reveals who is in us. Number 2 tribulation reveals the work that has been done in us and number 3 tribulation is the realization of regeneration and we'll end with this. So flip over to Luke chapter 21. Luke 21. Let's listen to what Jesus our Lord had to say about suffering. Luke 21. He prepped these guys, he primed the pump, he knew, and he was going to the cross, and he was going to ascend to the right hand of the Father, and he knew these guys were going to get the snot beat out of them every day for the next, until the end of their life. He knew that the Pharisees and the, the, the Jews were going to just absolutely trounce these guys, and so he was trying to prepare them for this. In Luke 21, verse 12, listen to what he says. But before this, speaking of the end times, before this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. Delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before the kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. It's an opportunity. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and a wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Now, by the way, that's not a verse for not prepping when you get up to give a sermon. (laughs) Okay, that's like you're in your bed snoring at 2 a.m. and you get ripped out of your bed and thrown into the street and you're about to get stoned and they say, hey, what is your defense? They'll give you the words. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about not prepping for a Bible study. You will be delivered, verse 16, up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Some of you, they will put to death. Verse 17, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Put that on a bumper sticker. See how that works. You will be hated. Everyone's going to hate you (laughs) for being my disciple. But not a hair. Now, this is where it gets interesting. But not a hair of your head will perish. What? By your endurance, you will gain your lives. That's one of those verses as you're reading, you you get to that and you're thinking, what is he talking about? What do you mean not a hair on your head is going to perish? What do you mean that by endurance, I'm going to gain my life? What do you mean? He couldn't possibly be talking about physical things. Because literally, I'm pretty sure that Stephen, who got stoned, right, in Acts chapter 6, I'm pretty sure that his hair and his head and his skull and his body was broken. So what is Jesus talking about here? I think he's saying something quite profound. He says, in verse 19, he says, By your endurance, that's the word hupamene. it's to bear up under, to hold fast. By your endurance, you will gain your lives now that word live it's psychos we get our word psych psychology psyche it's the inner person it's the mind the soul king james actually translates it the soul by your endurance gain you your soul if you've heard that verse okay so it's it's the inner self he's saying that by tribulation by struggle by hardship you will gain your truest self Now, this word self is really interesting in our culture, isn't it? We're all about finding out who our truest self is. I mean, people spend millions of dollars going on trips to figure out who am I? Who is my truest self? What is my identity? What is my gender? How do I identify? How do I, who is, who am I really on the inside? And this is all from Eastern religion that tells us that we find out who we really are on the inside. Okay? So this idea of self is very different for a Christian than it is for a worldly person. For a worldly person, we go into our feelings and our emotions and our desires and we say, who am I? And those desires define ourselves. But for the Christian, we're very different. The Christian says, no, 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 I'm not defined by who, how I feel or what I want in the moment or what my, my, my material desires are. I am defined by who my creator says that I am. That's what defines me. That's what makes me me. So identity is not found by how do I feel. It's defined by what has God said is true. What he's saying is that your truest self will be found through tribulation, through suffering. The real you is discovered, not by going on vacations, but by tribulation. That's where you find out where you really are and who you really are. And who are you? Who are you? Did you know that when you got saved, you got literally born again? Oh, yeah, we know that, Sam. Born-again Christians, we've heard that. No, 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 no. Nicodemus was just completely floored by this idea. He asked Jesus, how do I get in the kingdom of heaven? He says, well, you gotta, you got to be born again. <laughs> Nicodemus is like, what are you talking about? How do I get to climb into my mother's womb? He clearly didn't get it. When you get saved, this is one of the most miraculous realities of salvation. When you get saved, you are born again. And now you have two selves. Paul talks about this in his epistles. He's the old man and the new man is the language he uses to describe this. The old man and the new man. And you guys know this. When you are in the flesh, you're in the old man. Like the old desires, the desires that my myself, who I was before I got saved, want. And then when you get saved, this new self is introduced, this new longings. And I think they're your deepest longings. I think they're your deepest passions. It's this new regenerated person that lives within you. It's God's spirit who has given you a new life, new identity, new desires, new longings, eternal for eternal kingdom things. And these two things war against each other. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying is by your hupamene, by your endurance, through trials, through sufferings, you are growing into your truest self, the self that God has put inside of you, the self that was created for eternity, the self that was created for heaven, for kingdom things. This is what God calls us into. It's really a beautiful thing. The self, by Christian definition, is your new regenerated desires. Now here's my point. As a Christian, if you bear up under your trials, you are like a patient under a saving knife of a doctor trying to remove cancer. Think about cancer. What is cancer? It is a foreign foreign, um, organism which is at war with your true body. Only one can win. Either your body wins or your cancer wins. It takes over your organs. It's crowded in there. There's not room for cancer. Your body's not supposed to have it. It's part of the fall. Okay? In the new heavens and the new earth and your resurrected body, there is no cancer. Your body wasn't designed to have cancer. Cancer is not supposed to be there. So what do we do? We go in and we cut it out. We kill it with, 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 with chemicals and, and with, with chemotherapy and all of these things that, that, that just absolutely make us sick. Your body was designed to be cancer-free. And in the same way, as a regenerated human being, you were designed to be free from the controlling slavery to this world. Free in your new self, your deepest self, the self that was created for eternity. And what suffering does and what tribulation does is it's like a scalpel in the hand of a technical doctor who's cutting out the things that really don't matter. Man, when I'm living in seasons in my life where I'm just obsessed with stuff and things and experiences and fun and ease and pleasure, I feel sick. But tribulation has a way of making those things, those cancers, decrease and making my love and passion for Christ increase and the joy is exponential. When I'm living into my new self, when I'm living into my deepest version of who I truly am, the joy is exponential. Are you tracking with me here? So Jesus is telling these guys, you're gonna get beat up You're gonna get, you're gonna imprisoned. You're gonna be spat on. You're gonna be mocked. Even your own family is gonna turn against you. But when this is happening, and when this clay pot is breaking, and when the heat is 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 turning up the 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 gold, understand that it will cause you to live into your truest self. And I I just want you guys to think about that this week, because that's a deep, that's a deep thought about suffering. It's a deep thought about struggle. As our bodies are wasting away, you're not dying, you're growing into your eternal body. You're growing into what God has for you in eternity. When you get a new body, a new body that fits your new soul. You know, that's what what resurrection is, by the way. Resurrection is getting a body that matches your new soul. God's regenerated you, you're born again with a new life, and then he gives you a body that fits it. It's exciting. It's exciting to think about. So, Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. Let me just read it to you. 4.16. He says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you hear what he's saying there? There will not be one tear shed that does not help you grow into eternity. I mean, we have to think that way. Otherwise, we're going to lose our minds. This world is broken, and it is in need of redemption. But God is so good that he will not waste any of the brokenness. He has not caused the brokenness, He sovereignly allows the brokenness when he chooses to for his purposes. As a master craftsman uses heat. There's a difference between a forest fire and a refining fire. Do you know that? A forest fire destroys everything in its path. A refining fire is a focused fire. It's a fire that is used in the hand of a craftsman to burn away the things that ought not to be there. that's the difference. Verse eight, and we'll end here. And then I want you guys to get to work. Let me get my way back to Acts here. Pardon me. Verse 23 when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And when they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attalia, And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples." So it concludes the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas, and what do they do when they get home? They share the testimony of God's faithfulness and goodness, which is another way, by the way, of overcoming the enemy, is sharing testimonies. So what about the other side of this coin? We've talked about the enemy's attack, the assault, right? But what about the other one? Because the enemy's too smart to just assault us all the time right? He's too smart to just beat us up all the time. He's too smart to just discourage us. He knows that we'll catch on to that, so he has this other play, and this other play is very simple. As I said in the introduction, his play, other play is very simple. He says, let me just give you what you want and then convince you that you are something special. So let me read the text, and then I want you guys to get into your groups, and I want you to answer this question, how do we combat that? So here's what happens, verse 8, chapter 14. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet he was crippled from birth, had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and, and, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand up right on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that Paul had done, they lifted their voices, saying to, in Laconian, The gods have come down to us in likeness of men. Okay, just get this, right? So, so Paul and Barnabas, they heal this guy who was, who was a, a cripple. And as they're healing him, the Greeks come out and they go, You guys are gods. God has come down, which, yeah, okay. God has come down and and has healed. Barnabas, they called Zeus because he was a big guy. And Paul, Hermes, because I think he was kind of a sort of little unattractive guy from what we understand. Uh, Sorry, Paul. Uh, Because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowd. So they're bringing the the animals out. They're like, we're going to worship you guys. You're Zeus and Hermes. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is written or all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself with witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. This is the tale as old as time. God does a miraculous and powerful work like he does all the time. And people go, wow, that guy on stage was incredible. Did you see what he did? I love Matt Chandler, he, one of my favorite pastors. Uh, he says, uh, When I make much of Jesus, people make much of me. He's just being gut level honest. When, when the power of God is working through you, when Jesus is speaking through you, people will think too much of you. It's inevitable. When God does miraculous things through you, people mistake you for the, the, the power, of the source of the power, okay? This is the reality, we all do this, we, we all worship people, we put people on a pedestal, we put pastors on a pedestal, we put church theology or a philosophy on a pedestal, we put uh, denominations on a pedestal, we put um, authors on a pedestal, blog writers on a pedestal, we put them all on these pedestals and we say, look at these Christians, they really are something. And the enemy loves when we do that because when they fall, it leaves us in a place of crisis. Last night I got an uh, uh, makes me mad thinking about. I got, I got an email that the CEO of Acts Twenty Nine has just been fired, let go for spiritual abuse. He's just a jerk. Apparently to his staff and a jerk to the people that work under him, and he's just not being kind and leading in a way that exonerates Christ. So let him go. Same way that Mark Driscoll was let go for. Acts 29, for the same reasons. And I'm just thinking, and I've read the guy's book and I gleaned some really good things from him and I've respected him. I've seen him um, at conferences and I thought he was really great. Yeah, I'm sure is a great guy. He's just a, he's just a guy. He's just a human. He's just a person. But it leaves me in this place where I go, darn it. There goes another one. Bob Coy, Mark Driscoll. Go down the line. Pastor after pastor after pastor. Leader after leader after leader in my own life mentors that walked away from Christ, whatever it is, and it leaves me shipwrecked. It leaves me frustrated because we make too much of these people. We expect them to be Christ because Christ is in them, and then they let us down. So here's what I want you to do in your groups. There is answers to how Paul and Barnabas combat this kind of thinking when they come up and start trying to worship them. I want you guys in your groups to figure out what they do to combat that. Okay, so look at the text, get into it. There is a way that Paul responds, multiple ways that Paul responds that I think is really profound, really helpful. And then I want you, in your circles, I want you to boil that down into really practical. Okay, so as we begin to serve and Jesus' power manifests through us and people start to make too much of us, how do we combat that? That's the question I want you guys to ask. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, man, I really don't want to have a conversation in a circle, just give it a try. Okay, you can just sit and listen, but I'm telling you, power, the Holy Spirit comes when we open our mouths and start talking about the gospel to each other. Okay, so let's break into circles. Now listen, try to keep it three or four if possible, three, four, maybe five in these circles. If they get bigger than that, then certain people just never get to talk. So circles of three, four, and five, if you guys could just turn your chairs, say hi, and introduce yourself to the people. We're going to spend about 20 minutes um, talking, and I'll come back up, and I will close this out. Amen? Everybody feeling good? Feeling brave? Let's do it, okay.